Hello, welcome. I'm Royce, I'll be your host for this session, the 345 session, Suburban Dreaming. Welcome to Adelaide's Writers Week. Make yourself comfortable, sit down, take a load off. We're gonna get started. I'm here today with our esteemed authors, Jeff Goodfellow and Chris Rajah. Jeff, as many people here will know, is, an, is a titan of Adelaide literature. Uh, the esteemed poet of everyday life who has so many books to his name, but is here for his current book, which is uh, Out of Copley Street, A Working Class Boyhood, a new memoir. And Chris, straight from Melbourne, via Alice Springs? No, straight from Melbourne, straight out of Melbourne, is here today to talk to us about his uh, memoir, uh, Into the Suburbs, A Migrant, uh, a migrant Story. Um, Chris has many things himself. He's an essayist, a, a novelist, a playwright, and now a memoirist, if I can pronounce words correctly. And before we kick off the discussion, I'm just going to begin by doing a welcome to country. So I would like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional, uh, the, the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present, and future. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, I'm very excited about this session because we have two authors who have written two deeply distinctive works, but who, are, who, who kind of rhyme in many ways, in many unexpected ways. I'm interested in talking to them today about their work, the suburbs, and how they center working class stories and working class people where one kind of captures life prior to decimal currency, the other catches life afterwards. And so I guess just to jump straight in, I was hoping to ask, so Jeff, Chris, can you tell us, since we're gonna be talking about it a lot, can you just start by explaining to us what you mean by working class and how you understand that term relative to your work? Well, I grew up uh, in the aftermath of uh, World War II in the inner northern suburbs, what, what was called the inner northern suburbs of Adelaide in Copley Street at Broadview. Uh, in a street full of war service homes. So everyone's father had been to the Second World War, everyone uh, had seen active service in the street, and everyone went off to do very normal jobs. There were truck drivers, taxi drivers, picture frame makers, glass blowers, uh, diesel mechanics, uh, bus drivers. They were hands and feet people. So I grew up amongst hands and feet people, saw people go off to work on, uh, on push bikes or on the, uh, what was the MTT bus, uh, which is now, I don't know, uh, STA or whatever they call it. Um, and uh, uh, these were uh, very ordinary people who were living day-to-day, week-to-week existences. They, they weren't cashed-up people. They were people, battlers and survivors. Uh, it was a street full of trauma, really, because um, everyone had been to the Second World War so madness reigned supreme. Um, and uh, I guess I grew up in a time when, when there was uh, a, a similar political climate to today. It was liberal, liberal, uh, liberal state government, liberal federal government. Uh, the Prime Minister of Australia was uh, then Sir, Tom, uh, Sir um, Robert Menzies. But we were never encouraged to refer to him as Sir Robert Menzies. We were well, we always referred to him as Pig Iron Bob because we were told as young kids that he sold us a lot of scrap metal to the Japanese that came back at us during the Second World War uh, in the form of bombs and shrapnel. So uh, uh, we were never to defer to him. Uh, and I think that is you know, part of the working class ethos. The, uh, the Premier of South Australia, also a Liberal man and also a knighted man, Sir Thomas Playford. But... We were told not to despise him quite as much. They said he wasn't a bad bloke and at least he gave us a third of a pint of milk to drink at school each day, even though it was warm. Uh, but um, it was... Uh, uh, he was, again, a Liberal man. So that was uh, the, the, the climate that I grew up under in, uh, in Adelaide. Um, and, and Chris, so... Chris. Can you talk a little bit about how you understand working class life? Well... I was thinking all sorts of things about the term working class, but to put it simply, uh, both my parents worked. Uh, my mum was a teacher and my dad was a school principal in Calcutta. Uh, my dad was also an orphan in India 
and he raised himself up and became a school principal in India, both at a posh school and also a very poor school. Uh, my mum worked in a posh primary school in Calcutta, and then they decided to move to Australia into the, the suburbs in 1986. I, of course, was a child, and I joined them in that journey, and we moved to a suburb called Mulgrave in Victoria. It's a, quite a working-class suburb, uh, and I went to a high first a primary school and then a high school, and then became a scholarship kid and got a, a scholarship at a very posh private school in Melbourne, where my dad and mum, after working in factories, my dad got a good job and he was also a teacher at that private school. Uh, so when I think of the term working class, I think of working people, honest people that um, strive very hard in difficult situations, both in India, but also in Australia. But I also think of, um, and then when I think of the term class, I do think of it in economic terms, like, you know, like Karl Marx said about all that, but, you know, the means of production and things like that. But I also think of, when I think of my parents and, and the way my parents used the word, word class, they often meant uh, things like dignity, honesty, kindness, um, generosity, and it wasn't necessarily economic or status. It was based on values, values that, you know, my dad stood for and my mum stood for, and those values included humility and letting other people, you know, ahead in front of you. Uh, and so that's what my parents said was class. So when I was growing up, they said if a man or a woman was to have class, they wouldn't say it necessarily was to be rich or to be the boss, but to have those sort of values. Jeff, I'm interested in what you make of that in terms of the idea of thinking about class as a value system. That, those values, those very same values existed in my house too. And um, uh, honesty, being up front, uh, um, they, they, they were significant and important. Uh, I should say too that the street that I, the era that I grew up in, People were encouraged to leave school at the age of 14 or 15, and you were, you know, uh, you were expected to go to a factory job. Uh, you were told that you could be a boilermaker, welder, a fitter and turner, uh, a, a diesel mechanic, an electrician. All of those jobs were available. There were 5,000 jobs available down at the Islington Railway workshops and at Nailsworth Boys Tech. That's what you were trained to do: to walk out of the school, go down the hill, and start there. Um, if we went back there now, uh, there's no one working there. I went back there in 1992 to read poetry to what well, I was thinking was going to be an audience of 5,000 people, and there were less than 200 that had a little bit of downsizing. Now it's been wiped out altogether and they're non-existent, so those blokes are sitting out on the rock and roll in the, uh, in the northern suburbs. Um, but it wasn't unusual to leave school at 14 or 15, or even to get an exemption to leave earlier um, as many people did. Well, and I, I want to just follow on to this as well, because Chris, you got, because this is another point of departure for both your books. So Chris, you, in your tale, talking about growing up in your adolescence and that coming of age story, you sat at the intersection between this world that we're describing and also this history in terms of like, colonialism from India and then again in Australia. And for you, that must have been incredibly confusing in some ways. Well, what, I start my book off with this um, story about my name. So obviously, uh, my, I mean, I love Jeff's name, you know, Goodfellow. That's really cool, I thought. <laughs> and, and my name is kind of unusual as well in the sense that it's Christopher and Raja, which a lot of you people, <laughs> I mean, if you know what it means, it's like, what's this guy talking about working class? Isn't he a Raja? Isn't that supposed to be like a king or a prince? And uh, so a lot of the time people associate my name with that uh, translation. And so it came as a surprise to me because one day I wanted to know how I got this name. And my mum used to make a joke about it because my mum's quite funny. And, and she used to say, well, I married this Raja, but of course he didn't come with a princely purse. And, and so I thought to myself, well, what, where did I get this name? And I did find out that the name Raja was not always the family name. So 
once upon a time, um, the, 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 the grandfather in the family, my grandfather, who I never met, of course, because my dad was an orphan, uh, was summoned by the bishop and told to change his name, to make it easier to pronounce. And so he shortened the name Raja Ratnam to Raja. And years later, I often thought about that story because as a teacher, I, used, I became a teacher for a while. I used to teach in the Northern Territory and, and Melbourne for a little while. I haven't taught for a long time. But, um, but I found all these Asian students in particular from countries like Vietnam or China and, and a lot of Aboriginal students who would change their names and make it like, hey, what's your name? You know, it's funny, like reading the roll call and it's like, hey, Tom, my name is Tom and my name is John and all these names. And I would think, oh, well, but what? And I think, well, what's your re real name, you know? And, and then one day I thought to myself, hey, that's me as well. I didn't know my real name and my family changed their name. And so when I think of colonialism, it's like tied in with the sense of identity. So even though it does sound confusing when I tell this story that I didn't know my name, and it is a bit strange, um, sometimes those really confusing things in life aren't confusing, you just accept them. And, and I just, in a way, ignorance was bliss. So I was just ignorant, ignorant about it and went on, went on with life. But only years later did I think that was an unusual story. And so I sort of start this book with, um, with an anecdote about the name. So, and from there I want to ask as well, because the other thing that struck me about both your books is that when you talk about the suburbs, about growing up in these places and the people that live there, and you're telling these stories about these people, you both take them seriously. You both treat them with respect, both the good and the bad. You both follow through beautifully, whereas some people would set their books or talk, or, or, or whereas some people would seek to escape the suburbs, to flee, to get out, to go somewhere else. You two center these stories in these places, and I'm, and I'm wondering if you two can both talk about why that is important. Well, uh, pride. You know, I'm proud of where I came from. Um, I have. Uh, 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 no regrets at all about my upbringing, even though, you know, I might have left school at 15, undereducated, and went and did hard work, you know? Like, I grew up with people in the street, you know, there were hooker hand lived over the road. They called him hooker because he could hang from a cherry tree by his nose and pick cherries both hands. Uh, you know, there was Grassy Green who lived down the road. There was George Stone who was the rock. My old man was Captain Hornblower. Everyone had a nickname. Um, life was casual. Uh, I grew up pre-television, so uh, uh, we sat around and we told stories. You were expected to tell your story every day. So, you know, I'm uh, an Irish Catholic, so Irish Catholics talked and they told stories and, and stories were important. I didn't grow up in a house full of books. There might have been half a dozen books, but no one read them because people went wah, wah, wah instead of uh, reading them. And uh, I think, you know, that was important. When I was writing out of Copley Street, it's been 17 years, I should say, too, since I've appeared at an Adelaide Writers' Week, yet I've got you know, a pile of books this high. I've appeared in uh, New York at the Association for the Study of Working Class Life. Uh, I've appeared at many other literary festivals around Australia in that period of time, but there's been uh, a long period of time before I've been invited to the Adelaide Writers' Week, which says something about uh, how working-class writing is valued, I think, in Australia. Not everyone's going to agree with that comment. I know a few people have folded their arms and let them keep their arms folded. That doesn't bother me, you know, <laughs> least of my problems. But uh, I am proud of where I come from. I'm proud of uh, uh, writing about the people that, uh, that I've written about and I revere them. And they were my role models. That was how I was set up. And they, they made mistakes. They didn't always do the right thing, but they did something. They moved forward. And, um, and I guess uh, today, you know, you, you can't leave school at 14 or 15. You need to be 17 or 18. And then you go to university and you get a degree. And then the degree won't get you a job. So you go and get... Uh, uh, further education and, you know, it goes on until you've got your doctorate and when you're 32 years of age, you, uh, you know, you write your story about your, uh, 
middle-class existence and having the green lawn and the rubbish bin with a tight lid, etc., etc., and people come to Writers Week to hear it. I, well, I, I, you know... <laughs> Oh, and I lift the lid, you know? I should, I should add at this point, if you, have, if you want to respond to Jeff or just tweet about the festival in January, the hashtag for this event is hashtag... What is it? ADLWW. If you're on the Twits, on the Grams, that's the place to express your opinions. <laughs> and Chris, how, how, can you, can you yeah. start to respond? So uh, I had two childhoods, uh, probably having a third right now. But, but so... And I... The book, my book is centred around my Australian half of my childhood. Uh, this book is centred around growing up in the suburbs in Australia. Uh, look, I feel like there was a part of me that did want to run away from that. So, and I did in a sense. But, but um, it, was, it was interesting uh, as you go older and then think back to it and, and you know, and thinking back to the people that you knew along the way and the places that you lived in and the friendships that you made, they, they take on a different, you know, you see them differently. And um, yeah, and, and I think there is an aspect, like Jeff said, that um, I wanted to celebrate what, what that was about and the places. And there's a long tradition, say, in other countries where they write about, you know, their hometown and there's all this great you know, songs, even Paul Kelly and, all, and American poets uh, would mention, you know, familiar names of, of places and, and things. And I wanted to do that. And I wanted to, um, you know, in a sense, glorify some of those um, parts of Melbourne and Australia that are sort of just, you know, um, not necessarily glorified, but I wanted to make them epic and place our little existence in that epic story and that epic narrative and so yeah that's sort of what I was thinking um, it also was uh, helpful to you know move away from um, the scene of Melbourne for a while and be based in the Northern Territory for quite some time and also travel to Europe and look at Australia from a distance as I looked at Australia from a distance sorry as I also looked at India from a distance when writing my previous book um, so that distance helped as well to have a perspective and also uh, an appreciation of, of that. And now I want to ask you both a question about suburbia in a second, but just before we do that, just to kind of set up the a preamble, Chris, you have, a part of, you have a passage in your book, page 89 through 91, that I think is a very beautiful description of Keysborough in Melbourne. I was wondering if maybe you could you can read a passage from that? Sure. At last, my family had a real Australian home, complete with a backyard in which to play cricket, Slowly, my parents accumulated the goods we saw and coveted in everyone else's houses. Our first colour te television, then a VCR, then a sound system and more than one phone extension. As my parents grew more comfortable financially, there seemed to be more things we needed. Soon enough, I needed a computer and a printer for school. The more we buy, my mother would say, the more there is to dust and clean. Parkmore had over 100 stores along with thousands of parking spaces on all sides. There were plenty of brightly lit storefronts that shoppers could enter from the parking lot, darting in and out like flathead, sampling bait. Housewives with crying babies, tradies, pensioners, schoolchildren, young mothers, old couples, thieves and shoplifters all came to Parkmore. The whole complex fitted under one roof with air conditioning for the summer and heat for the winter. I could buy a record in one shop, a basketball in another, and a magazine or a t-shirt in the third without leaving the building. The area was serviced by bus routes and taxis, but I could easily walk to the shops from home. Like most bored teenagers, I went there looking for excitement. I'd peer into Hilton fashion clothes and venture children's wear, the sanity music shop and the Terry White chemist to see if I could find any friends, girls in particular, to chat with. Toddler shrieks echoed off the walls, this monument to shopping seemed massive, brightly lit with plastic palms and flowering plants and colourful logos everywhere. There were so many options in the food court, hot, cold, fresh, fast, that I wondered how anyone could be thin in Australia. What my friends and I coveted changed from week to week. Regular or flavoured milk, golden delicious or Granny Smith apples. There was always plenty to choose from. The area around Keysborough was littered with curious trees called paperbarks, 
Kids vandalized the trees by stripping off the bark with their bare hands. I liked feeling the soft papery fiber with my fingers. There were large parks nearby where I used to go and kick the football. I stood and watched the ducks in the pond. I rode my bike to the nearby wetlands where I spotted pelicans and fed the ducks. The huge sky made me feel free. I roamed the streets and imagined a life full of rich possibility. The mozzies came out and as I reluctantly made my way home for dinner, the sky turned violet. We did dinner, perhaps king prawns and white rice or a barbecue, and watched the sun set in a, in a dramatic orange blaze. On a clear night, I'd stare at the constellations in the dark night sky, the saucepan, the pointers and the southern cross. As autumn came and the days transitioned, dusk drifted in earlier. The air smelled like smoke. The leaves on the trees turned gold or rusty and fell. Not yet, yet not a leaf could, would be allowed to lie still as driveways and gutters were constantly swept clean. In the cold winter, frost built up and covered the car windows and lawns. Our car would splutter each morning, sometimes if it, it refused to start. As spring arrived, we complained about hay fever. Our eyes red and itchy, our nose is running. We took antihistamines, nasal corticosteroids, decongestants, chromalin sodium, and various other treatments to, com to combat the pollen in the air. I seemed to be constantly suffering from allergies or viruses as though my body had failed to adapt to this alien environment. I always had tissues in my pockets and would leave a trail of them wherever I went, which irritated Dad. In summer, the heat caused the road surface to hemorrhage. The bitumen became soft and sticky. Some days it was so hot you couldn't walk barefoot in the street. Hot northerly winds filtered through the house. Sometimes we sat on the, per sat on the perspex-covered patio at the back and had a barbecue. Possums darted along the power lines with babies on their backs. Washing hung still on the clothesline, dry and stiff from the sun. In the distance were the Dandenong Ranges, ever-present and ancient. Families in Keysborough and suburbs around us often drove down to the beach at Edithvale. Parents took their children into the shimmering water for a swim, or they'd lie and play on the yellow sand. The fresh air seemed to ease the tensions brought on by the monotony of working, shopping, weeding, cleaning, the lack of money, the boredom, frustration and anger. Young kids would gaze into the rock pools or stand on the egg sacs of the conical sand snails on the beach, feeling the gelatinous blobs squelch through their toes. They never failed to be fascinated by the crabs that scuttle away under the rocks. Teenagers played truant from school and went swimming, meeting with their friends and exchanging phone numbers. The uh, I might, I might stop you there. That's a, good, that's a good stopping point for this uh, discussion. And what a beautiful set of imagery you set up there for the, for, to, for, about the suburbs. You sketched this life. So I was hoping you can talk a little bit about how you see suburbia in your writing with that sense, you know, from that imagery. Well, um, as I said, um, you know, with the, with the distance that I gained from, you know, moving away and then going traveling and, and looking back, I, and also the privileged background that I had. I mean, I say it privileged in a strange kind of way because I also grew up in Calcutta, my previous childhood. Um, you know, the suburbs are quite grand in a way because, you know, if you come from Calcutta, they're, they're extraordinarily grand. And, um, and then if you are living here, you can take it for granted because, yeah, they'd have this kind of amazing, you know, because you compare it to, say, the richer suburbs. And, and so it's kind of always, you're always comparing to something else. But, but there you really appreciate what well, suburban life is. there's plenty to appreciate. And, and I think as writers, our job is to observe and honour what is around us. And, you know, and honour, we can honour things by being critical. I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't, I'm not critical of the suburbs and I'm not critical of Australia. There's plenty of things that you will find by reading, but I'm presuming both our books, that are critical of our backgrounds and our, our histories too, because it's not smooth sailing, clearly. But, but uh, as we observe and, and, and think about these places, uh, just stating it, you know, like there is this beauty there, you know, those, those, those um, things that you find. In the everyday things. In everyday things. And, and Jeff, how, how do you feel about, you know, when you think about suburbia, I mean, this is set in a suburbia of a very different time a time when Australia was still developing. How did you think about that sense of place? <clears throat> when I thought about writing this book, you know, I've, I began writing um, poetry 
and I've written poetry and published many books of poetry. And in uh, 1992, Jason Steger from the Melbourne Age uh, wrote a critical little line in the Melbourne Age after my performance here saying, uh, Jeff Goodfellow is Australia's loudest poet. Well, that might be the case too. It certainly was the case in 1992, and I can still belt out a pretty loud poem, a pretty raucous poem. But when what I thought about was um, it would be nice to come back to Writers' Week, and I thought, how could I get back on the program at Writers' Week? And I thought, no one buys poetry. Well, that's what they tell you, although I've sold about 40,000 copies. Uh, but I thought, they do, they do read prose, so I'll write a, bit, a book of prose. So I started to think about the audience, and I thought, who would my audience be? I mean, you can't, be, you can't write a book without considering who your audience is. And I thought, I'd like my audience to be Adelaide Writers Week for this book. I'd like to see septuagenarians and uh, octogenarians and even some younger people in their 50s. <laughs> Some kids in their 40s, even, you know, some children in their 30s. But that, that was how I thought about writing this book. My poetry can be harsh because it reveals the lives of people who have had hard lives. The, the prose is much softer. It's much more human. But I thought, too before I started writing this book, about the important writers that have come out of South Australia. And I think one of them is undoubtedly Barbara Hanrahan, who I was lucky enough to meet very early in my career. And she said, if I could write poetry, I'd be writing poetry like you, Jeff. And we had quite a conversation at Murphy Sisters Bookshop on the Nord Parade. And I thought, I'd love to write prose like her. And I thought, what has she done? I thought, she has revealed the suburb of Mile End, Thebiton. She's talked about working class South Australia. And I thought, I know working class South Australia. I mean, if I go back to my family home, if I stand on the front veranda and pull the trigger of a rifle, I could hit someone in what was the Northfield Mental Hospital. It's no longer there because the state has got rid of mental hospitals. I could move the gun around, I could pull the trigger again, and I could get someone in Yatha Labor Prison. They've extended that, and they'll need to keep extending it because of drugs. I could, if I went round to the side window and pulled the trigger, I would shoot a, a girl that was in Vaughan House, the lock-up for naughty girls at that stage, which is now the South Australian Youth Remand Assessment Centre, so it's a mixture of naughty boys and naughty girls that I would get. If I went out the back door and pulled the trigger, I would shoot someone that was in the Islington Railway workshops. So that was my scope. I thought, I want to write about that area. I want to write about the people that populate that area. And I can probably best do that by reading you a passage. So. Shall I go ahead and read a passage, Royce? Or? Sure, sure, sure. Please. So this is the swan... This, uh, this is a piece about my father who was known as Captain Hornblower. They reckon he was the only man who could talk underwater without blowing bubbles. <laughs> he was also a very naughty boy. He was uh, an alcoholic. He was very charismatic, though. He was charming. He could be charming, especially in the morning. And... Um, he was very popular with uh, barmaids right throughout South Australia. But we, we'd often have parties at home and he would like showing off. He's a typical good fellow. And um, here's a, a piece about him making glass swans, an art that I would say there would be no one in the Torrance Parade Ground at the present moment could do this. I mean, it was a highly skilled technical job that... Um, is one of those things that is, is gone now. Dad was telling Vonnie and Jeannie about the glass swans he could blow, but I don't think they believed him. Elvie overheard their conversation, and because she'd seen him making them once before, said, no, Johnny's really clever. There's hardly anyone else in Adelaide who can do what Johnny can. The more Elvie kept going on about how clever he was, the more animated he became. 
It was nearly 10 o'clock when he said to me, Jeff, get out the shed. Bring me in a length of the clear half-inch tubing and a small piece of the red and the yellow tubing too. And grab the bench torch, a bit of that brown rubber tubing and the small shifting spanner. After that, you can bring in the old Electrolux vacuum cleaner and the suction pipe with that adapter I made for it. I'll blow some swans for the ladies. I lugged all the gear into the kitchen within a few minutes, but had to go back again to grab him a three-cornered file so he could cut the glass. It took me a while to find one because the shed was really messy. When I got back, he'd hooked up the bench torch. He'd had some of the brown tubing running from under the gas stove to the torch. He was starting to connect the blower into the vacuum cleaner to the torch with the adapter, and I had to go back out again and bring in the insulation tape so he could get it to seal. Once he had done that, he struck a match and lit up the torch. Then he started to adjust the gas and air levers until he got the colour of the flame to a soft blue. The ladies moved back a bit after he lit up the torch. I think they might have been a bit scared he was going to blow the joint up. Did you bring me in a, a cork, he asked. You didn't tell me you wanted one. Hop out and get one pronto. Come on, I'm ready to go. When I came back in, he had Mum's asbestos simmer mat pad on top of the sink alongside where he was working. He ran the file around the length of clear glass tubing and then showed the ladies how easy it was to snap it and get a clean edge. He put a cork into one end of the tubing and went to work, twirling the glass between his thumbs and pointer finger over the raw flame. Dad wore a wristwatch with a sweep hand, but for his whole life he wore it with the face of the watch on the inside of his wrist. This was because of the technical nature of glass blowing. It demanded precise timing. His palms faced upward and his face was full of concentration as he twirled the glass around until it was red hot and glowing. Then he brought the length of tubing to his mouth and he started to blow a ball from the molten glass. He kept moving in and out of the flame, gradually blowing and expanding the ball until it approximated the size of a tennis ball. Vonnie and Jeannie were amazed at his skill and dexterity. They nudged one another and whispered little comments back and forth. Elby said, I told you Johnny was clever. Did you know that a couple of years ago he used to make all the scientific glassware for elephant laboratories? Once Dad had formed the body of the swan, he began to reheat the glass on the longest end where the tube met the body. When it was red, hot and molten, he swept the tubing out and upwards into a graceful curve drawing the tubing out and pulling it back up to create the slender neck of a swan. Then he reheated the ball on what would be the underside. When the temperature was right, he pressed the hot glass down on Mum's simmer pad and fashioned a flat base for it. By this stage, everyone, in, everyone was in awe of Dad's artistic ability and even the men had brought their beers into the kitchen to watch him work. I'm going to have to have a drink, he said never being a man who would let work interfere with his drinking. He defended his position by telling the crowd that the tubing had to cool a little before he could begin to handle it again. After quick beer, he moved the cork to the opposite end of the tubing, reheated the glass and carefully blew the head of the swan. He then reheated the tubing in front of the head and drew the glass out to fashion a beak. After another beer and quite a few accolades, he heated the tube at the back of the swan and drew the molten glass upwards to create its tail. I then passed him the yellow glass and he added some colour to define its beak. Then it was a red glass and he spotted in a pair of eyes before resting the swan down on its base upon the simmer pad. That's for you, Vonnie, he said, and don't worry, I'll make a swan for all you ladies tonight. No one is going home empty-handed. I'll leave it there. Now, with that little snippet, you do something exceptionally well. You take a complex figure and you show us that this person who is a raconteur, who is charming, who also has problems, is capable of incredible beauty. And that was something throughout your book when you're talking about your relationship with your father that you both do, that was just really interesting to watch how, how this man was essentially your first character study. Was that right? Ordinary people do exceptional things, Royce, I think. And and uh, we underestimate the abilities of a lot of people. And people like my father haven't been recorded in books because 
most people that are working class, you know, they don't see writing as, as work. They go to work, uh, you know, doing physical stuff. But uh, I've been lucky enough to... I had a, a, a big working life. I worked until I was 32 years of age. I've got, at the present moment, I've got L4 on L5, bone on bone. I've just had a week in hospital not long ago. I've got a completely buggered back. Uh, and that's what hard work does for you. My mother told me when I was a kid, hard work never killed anyone. But she didn't say about how many people it had maimed. And uh, what I'm trying to do is use the school now. Uh, my older son, who's sitting uh, three rows back, he, uh, he brought home a, a, a book when he was at school, left on the floor, and I just got out of Memorial Hospital. I was crawling around on my hands and knees and I crawled over this book and uh, I thought, I don't read books. I'd never seen any books at school that vaguely resembled the lifestyle that I lived in the inner northern suburbs and I kept crawling over that book. But one day through boredom and the fact that I had to be in bed for the day, I thought, I'll flip it over and see what it is. And I flipped it over and saw it was a book of poetry. Oh, poetry, I'm too tough to read poetry. And I thought, no bastard will see me, I'll read it. <laughs> so I took it to bed and I read it from cover to cover and I thought, shit, this is talking to me, this is communicating. And I started to think, I reckon I could do this too. And I thought, if I'm going to be stuck in bed for the rest of my life, how am I going to support my, my then three kids? And I thought, maybe I could write. And I started to write. My first book of poetry went through nine print runs. Uh, and, you know, most of the books have been through multiple print runs. But what I'm doing is just writing about ordinary people, just putting that, that focus. I've, I've lived with ordinary people. I've, you know, uh, mixed with them all, all, all of my life. So I think that that ordinariness needs to have the spotlight shone on it and uh, let them be illuminated. Chris, I just wanted to throw to you for a second as well, because, you know, again, both your books deal with your relationships with your fathers, and your relationship was, in, like, was complex, but in a completely different way. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, I was thinking a lot whilst Jeff was reading and, and talking as well about um, not just my father, and just, but, you know, something else that I explore, and I'm guessing that through your book, you also explore just by what you just said then, is this idea of masculinity. And, uh, you know, it's quite interesting having a panel of three men on the stage these days um, and, and very different ages and stages of lives, I think, and probably backgrounds, but also these strange similarities that we all have, we were discussing earlier. We have these strange overlaps in our stories, and yet we've come from such different backgrounds. And um, this idea that... Um, you know, when you come to Australia that I had to grapple with was a very different idea of masculinity and using your hands uh, and what it meant to use your hands in terms of work, working with your hands, uh, and how that's stratified, much more stratified in India with the caste system. And, and that's yeah. A, that's a point in your book, though. Your parents turned, I think, turned around to each other one day and say to each other, the class system here is far more rigid than it was at home. Was that right? Yeah, and, and so, so, so my dad, you know, was fascinated, you know, with people like Bob Hawke and, and the tra Australian trade union movement because he thought that in Australia there could be this... And this idea of egalitarianism and mateship was very uh, intriguing, you know, like for people like my dad who was an orphan in India who thought that if you come to Australia, everyone's going to be your mate and it's going to be egalitarian and everyone's going to be as friendly as Bob Hawke. And, <laughs> and so I thought, wow, you know, everyone's going to be my mate. So I walked around like my first day in Australia. Hi, hi. I thought everyone was my friend. In fact, the teacher, I went to grade six and the teacher said, come up to the front and introduce yourself. So could you imagine this Indian kid going up to the front in front of the class, first day of primary school in Australia in grade six and said, hello, uh, you know, in an Indian accent at that point. And uh, hello, this is 1986, January, uh, hot summer. Uh, hello, I'm, I'm from India and I can play cricket and <laughs> I, can, I can bowl and I can bat. And I, I thought they were all going to be my friend and everyone's going to go, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And um, so I had these guys look at me and go, okay, mate, you know? <laughs> so the guys like were like sussing me out, like, you know, okay, well, soon I learned how to fight, let's put it that way. And, uh, and then the girls were like asking me, hey, have you ever get, gone on with someone? And I was like, what is get on? Ah, you say you're so gay. Ah, you don't even know what get on is, and you know you're a nerd. And I'm like, I didn't know what gay was. I didn't know what a nerd was, and I didn't know how to fight. And I thought everyone was going to be my friend. So, so all of a sudden, I realised that there was a very different hierarchy in Australia. And so very quickly, I learned how to fight, as I was saying earlier. And 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 you know, to feel to feel, and I and I never read a book because reading a book was either being a gay or being a nerd. So I never picked up a book. In fact, I refused to look at books until I was in year 10 after being really bashed up and getting a scholarship and all that. But that's, a, that's part of the whole story. And uh, my parents were like freaking out because they were like, what, we came to Australia, this kid doesn't read. He doesn't want to go to school. He just wants to chase girls and he's fighting and he's, and what's happened? And I said, I'm becoming an Aussie. <laughs> Oi, oi, oi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then my dad, who, you know, got very worried about all this, but he, he started to, you know, understand that there was a different play, play, play here, you know, and so he started to get a bit disillusioned. I didn't quite understand what disillusioned was and, you know, how, how you know, he was like, he started to realise that not everyone was Bob Hawke and, uh, you know, it was a bit more complicated here. And of course, you know, even just if you went from one suburb to the next suburb, so, you know, you, you have a Brighton here, right? And we have a Brighton in Melbourne too. So, you know, if you went from some working class suburb towards your Brighton area, all of a sudden things were quite different, right? And that's exactly what happened to us. So, you know, I started to go to school in Brighton, but I was still living in a working class suburb and everyone in my school in the holiday time would go on holidays and my parents were new migrants so there was nowhere to go you know where what did you do over the holidays oh, I watched TV you know I watched football or you know I learned about football through the TV I didn't even go to the football stadium because that was like a you, you went to the football you just turn on the TV and you you could watch it on the TV so I was just happy to watch the TV but but in Brighton everyone went on holidays and they'd come back with the tan oh what did you do over the holidays oh we went to some exotic place, you know? And anywhere was exotic, whether it was just your beachside suburb, that was exotic, or down the coast. You know, we're, we're, we're going to down the coast for our summer holidays. I'm like, whoa, you're going down to the coast for the summer holiday, that's so fancy. And, um, oh, or they, you know, go to Queensland, or, or some even went overseas, or some went on boats and stuff. And I was like, wow. So all of a sudden, <laughs> I started to realize that, you know, everyone had different school holidays, did different things. They actually had holidays. I just stayed at home and watched TV while my parents worked in factory or, you know, tried to get a bit better job or went to uni and, you know, and didn't see them. So I was just too busy chasing girls and getting into fights and trying to acclimatise. I, I want to ask one more question, but in, in the meantime, in about a couple of minutes, we're going to have questions from the audience. So if you can think of something now, please do. The process will be you go queue up at the microphone and then you can ask. But in the meantime, while you're thinking about that, Final question for you guys. You've mentioned before that we're three blokes sitting on stage, right, talking about this. I wanted to ask, you know, for this for suburbia for women, you know, can be an incredibly lonely place, can be incredibly isolating in very different ways. I was wondering how you both thought about gender as and, and how to represent that perspective as you're putting together your works. Well, um, I guess I didn't think much about it uh, at all, apart from the fact that I thought about my mother and her existence in the suburbs, and she was a, uh, a dressmaker, and uh, she was always making uh, dresses for someone. Um, so uh, I, and yet I didn't write about that in the book. I, um, I didn't think about that until after I'd finished the book, and I thought I really should have invested some of my mum's story, much more of my mum's story, in the book. And I suppose I've grown up in a very masculine world surrounded by men and perhaps that's why I miss that boat. But I've certainly thought about it since. And um, yeah, f yeah, f Food for a second book, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. I thought about it a lot. Um, again, I was fortunate to write this book at a with quite a hiatus, like, I mean, even though mine's a memoir, my memoir starts, stops at, at about the age 21, right? It only goes through a certain period. And uh, so, so in a way, yeah, I too thought about mum a lot. And, and also, um, 
the girlfriends and the girls that at, that I met while I was too busy chasing girls and instead of doing schoolwork and reading books, um, and how that toxic masculinity and trying to fit in impacted on my life in terms of fitting in and becoming an Australian male. And that was something I really wrestled with. And um, partly because I'm also a father, I don't write about that, but I'll, I mean, I'm divulging stuff which isn't in the book, but, but you know, I am a father of daughters. And uh, that got me thinking about my behavior and what I was like and what, I, we, were what we were conditioned to be as men and to, be, to grow up as men. And I thought that was really interesting to think back upon because, you know, we often see and hear, including in the news currently, about men's behavior, say, in parliament, et cetera, yeah, right? You've heard it all in the news. And I often think about how, you know, we label certain men as being, oh, he's terrible or whatever. But the thing is, we're all, we're all, we're all in a sense, you know, um, complicit because that's, that's sort of, you know, men are, men are built, in a sense, to self-destruct, you know, and to have certain values that are in, have a big clash with, with, with how they're then supposed to be. And I think that's been a generational shift that's happening and continues to be, continues. And so whenever I hear things in the news, it makes me think about my childhood because the things that happened in childhood in high school and being 16, 17 in the suburbs is often reflected in our leaders and in our wider complicit society. As they, I mean, the people haven't changed. They've just gotten fancier jobs and fancier cars and it's still the same. And, and so, yes, I do reflect on it, but, but I look at it in a very succinct way and how it impacted on my dad and me as we first arrived in this country. Please, applause. <laughs> now, we're going to have some questions from the audience. If you would like to ask a question, Alira's going to put her hand up. Please come cue at the mic. Um, we already have one, so anyone else, please come down and join. Uh, Joey, come up. A uh, question for you, Jeff. Um, talking about class warfare and the suburbs and the working class, I'm really curious to know what your attitude has been towards Trump in the last four years. I mean, the whole Trump thing hasn't been a working class revolt, but it has definitely been an attack on the middle class sensibilities and the middle class elite. So have you had some mixed feelings about this bizarre oh. four years? Oh, uh, not mixed feelings, really, but I've been to America several times and... Um, I grew up uh, thinking that highly intelligent people live in America, extremely well-educated people live in America. And I went uh, to, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of the university at, at the moment, but the, the first reading that I did in America was at a university. I thought I was going to get really intelligent questions and uh, I was met with a barrage of uh, nothing. Uh, because they really couldn't understand my language in a way. Um, but also I, I soon realised that uh, uh, American people were uh, pretty much undereducated in the main. And when I was in Germany, I was exposed to uh, a lot of uh, American military people and uh, it was pointed out to me by German academics that, that really... The guys that are over there are the bottom of the picking order as far as uh, education are concerned. Um, and I think that that shows up too in the, uh, uh, the polls. The fact that so many people voted for Trump yet again shows the stupidity of uh, a lot of people in the United States. And I suppose the fact that we've got Morrison as a Prime Minister here shows the stupidity of a lot of Australians. <laughs> Hot take, Jeff Goodfellow. <laughs> Hi, um, so just a quick, um, simple kind of question. I was wondering about uh, your experiences with the intersection between uh, race and class. Um, Christopher, yeah, you touched on this a little bit and I'm sure yourself and your family have experienced that a lot. And um, 
Yeah, Jeff, I was wondering if you'd like seen much um, of that during your kind of years working and writing. Chris? Yeah, uh, so definitely, um, so initially, you know, we're looking at Australia in the book from about 1986 to uh, probably about 1994. Uh, and then all my experiences after that, both in the suburbs, but then also as an adult. Um, so there were a number of things that I reflect on in the book. And obviously, uh, one of them, like, like, let's go back like in history, one of the first encounters or friendships that I have, just by serendipity or chance or something, uh, was a friendship I had with an Aboriginal family that rocked up from Darwin that came and lived in Mulgrave in Melbourne. And there was this cool guy. And I remember, he, you know, he was very cool and he was tall and he was black and he was strong. So I, as I'm strutting around the suburbs, all of a sudden, and, and in those days there weren't many brown people in the suburbs, right? And so as soon as I saw this brown guy, I was like, okay, there's a brown guy like me. And so we both would strut. And he was Aboriginal. So that was like kind of intriguing to me because he was like an Australian. But I thought everyone in Australia was going to be blonde, right? And so he was black and he was Australian and he was strutting as well, feeling equally like an outsider and he could fly. And, and I asked him what his nickname was. And he told me his nickname was The Prince. And I was like, okay, this guy's cool. So, so now I'm like walking around with The Prince and the prince is tough, and he's black, and he's a real Australian. And I'm thinking, okay, what's a real Australian? And so, but the prince, um, he's Aboriginal, and he's got, but all his brothers, he's got these big family. And so he's got like 12 brothers and sisters, and half his brothers are all white, and half are all black. And now I'm really confused, right? I'm only like 13, 14, and I'm like, come to Australia. I'm like, oh my God, Australians are black, but they're white. Um, there's this guy called the Prince. He's real Australian, and, but half his family is white, and they're also black. What is this stuff? Because I thought everyone was just going to be white in Australia, including me. I thought I was just going to turn white and blonde as well. I just thought by just moving here, that was going to happen. And so this is the confusion with race, you know? So I had all these preconceptions that I was dealing with, and I was quite a naive kid, because obviously quite a stupid kid. And so I'm walking around with the prince thinking all these strange thoughts. And he's telling me about the Northern Territory and listening to me talk about India. And I'm a Raja, so I'm like, hey, I'm like you, prince, but you know, I'm like a king, I'm like an Indian prince. And so we were both walking around, Raja and prince. And anyway, I sort of hide this prince's uh, story because, you know, I didn't want to tell, like there was this question of ethics as well involved in telling other people's stories. But so in terms of race and racism, very early on, I came across the Aboriginal aspect of race and the color. And so, uh, so this issue of color keeps coming up in my book, including a time when my teenage friends want to make a movie for, movie for school. And they were looking for a brown person to play because the movie was called The Wrong Color. And of course, you know, who gets the lead role? The only brown person they knew was me. So they said, hey, you know, you want to be an actor? And they didn't even come to my school. They actually came from another school looking for me to be the brown person in their movie called Wrong Colour. So I was the wrong colour. So, yeah, so it uh, happened. And with the, the no, 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 no. That, that movie, though, wasn't that, uh, exp wasn't that designed to be an anti-racism movie as well? Uh, who yeah. knows what it was. Yeah, but it was. It was designed to be an anti-racism movie. But the racism wasn't happening in Australia in that movie. It was actually going to be an, a movie about, set in America about anti-racism. But they got this Indian guy to play, a, uh, to play an African-American slave. Uh, and this was just... We were all young, you know. But the curious thing about these, both these stories which I don't mention in the book, is that there are two characters, one the prince and one the surfer in the film that we made. And both of those boys, friends of mine, ended up becoming AFL footballers. And I don't reveal their identity, but there you go. There's a little bit of a trivia for you. Both of them were AFL footballers. And both of them um, played at the highest level, and so football played a big part of it. So when you know, recently there's the race debate, you know, and Eddie Maguire and stuff saying, oh, you know, um, there's no racism in football. Hey, I played football. Uh, my friends played football. I was about to say the teams. But, um, you know, they played in certain teams. And, um, you know, there was... Uh, hey, for a while I was called a lot of things and, uh, 
And yeah, these things happen, but. And, and they're confusing, and it's, it's, it's very hard. confusing. Yeah. And I, I, I'll throw to Jeff now to talk because because you, you grew up in a, a in Australia that was still developing, that was just starting to open up, the early stages. Yeah, well, every every day you'd go to school, and a new ship would have arrived at uh, out of harbour, so you'd have uh, uh, you'd meet Theo one day, and the next day it'd be a, a Dutch uh, arrival, it'd be Jan, or uh, there'd be. Um, uh, Pellegrino Adabo uh, uh, after an Italian ship had arrived. So every day you were seeing people from different European races. And if you went out to uh, the edge of Australia, which was the Grand Junction Road, if you walked, and it was in those days, if you walked over the other side of the Grand Junction Road, you were met by uh, you know, acres of Nissan huts uh, filled up with migrants. And they, those people went across the road to Enfield High School. And I think that uh, around about in the mid-1960s, I think Enfield High School had the highest rate of teenage pregnancies anywhere in South Australia. So there was quite a bit of activity with uh, migration. Uh, so so, uh, so if we can, like, if we, the takeaway for, like, race and class in Australia and how that filters down to working class life in a sentence, what, what would it be? Uh, Everyone becomes friends eventually. Well, <laughs> they certainly did, uh, <laughs> and I think that's a very good thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll take that as an answer, Royce, uh, myself. And uh, <laughs> well, I, I have, I have a slightly. Well, I mean, I think there's two aspects to that. I mean. You know, we all become friends eventually, and so obviously uh, there's that intermingling of races. So it leads, you know, there's sex involved, and also the idea of uh, um, death involved too, because uh, race and class, you know, we all die, but also sometimes racism and classism can kill people, you know, so it leads to, it can lead to all sorts of, it can, lead, it can have very dramatic and severe endings, and um, so sex and death. Because it can sometimes express itself in violence. I mean, you talked about the bullying you received at school, and you know, and 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 a part of that was overt racism. Yeah, and so as I said, you know, um, Christopher Raja, my name itself is a product of uh, the intermingling of races and cultures and colonialism, and that leads from that's you know. Um, uh, multiculturalism is a product of a lot of sexual relationships between white and black people. And, uh, and, and it's fraught. <laughs> and there's also a lot of violence attached to that history too. So, yeah, so um, sex and death, that's what I write about. <laughs> that's a very nice way of putting it. Um, so we have one more question. Okay, um, thanks both of you for a very entertaining session. Very, very good. Um, I'm just wondering, particularly Chris, um, you know, it's 25 years or so since the end of your book. How much do you think um, things have changed or how much do you think they're still the same in terms of wrong colour? Well, um, it's me that's different. I don't think uh, things have necessarily changed. I think uh, we're different. I mean, you know, the history, it's like Nietzsche said, you know, it's just an eternal, eternal reoccurrence. I mean, you know, the migrants have just changed, you know. Uh, the migrants that Jeff described have just changed. You know, there's always a new lot that's arriving. And so, you know, who, like, you know, so what I found was the names and the colours and the shades of colour have changed and the countries of origin have slightly changed, but the issues continue the same. And the bullying is just done by the next, the last generation. So, you know, migrants are always bullying, bullying, bullying. <laughs> migrants are always bull bullying the last set, the latest set of migrants, because we're all migrants. And so, uh, as we acclimatise, we say, there's no more room for any more. And so, you know, I have, migrants, family members, who say, enough of these refugees, enough of these migrants, and I'll be looking at them going, that's what people said about you. But now they've settled in, you know, now they're house owners, and they're like, enough, enough. So everyone's always bullying, bullying the next lot. And so when I say I have changed, I've just gotten less uh, angry, and I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. You know, I've just gotten to realise that Life is really complicated, and no one's like the super migrant. Like, I don't write about, like, hey, all hail the migrant at all. As I, I point out that no one's exceptional. Um, most of us, are, all of us are flawed, and, 
and it's how we get along, you know? And, and so I've changed, I've grown, but, you know, and there have been lots of scars along my journey, but, but um, the story remains the same despite the years. I mean, sure, there's improvements in, in terms of education and things, but, you know, you can ask new migrants from Africa, from Afghanistan, from Trinity College or wherever, in the latest news report that I saw the other day. Uh, it's, it's complicated, and there's always, you know, different shades of racism, sexism, classism. It continues. But as, as individuals, we, no, no, we, no, 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 we, we evolve, hopefully. And the good fellows evolve too. You know, I've got a, a, a granddaughter who is uh, Anglo-Indian. I've got nephews and nieces um, whose names are Severio and Nunzia. So, um, you know, uh, I think Australia has changed dramatically over the, the course of my lifetime. And uh, it's uh, not uncommon for intermarriages now. And they're not frowned upon by, uh, by most of the uh, uh, significant uh, older people. Well, that, that's right. And, and, and I mean, like, and it's always been the case. I mean, we've always been cross-cultural. I mean, my family background has got Irish in it, right? And I, my mom's Anglo-Indian. So, you know, the, I, this is like, this is like, these are eternal questions. I mean, the, the Irish and the French were all in India in the 1700s. So we've been rolling with these stories and the Goodfellows and the Rajas were hanging out from back in the day. For 500 years, we've known each other. <laughs> That's right. You know, like, we haven't come here and just met. We've yeah. been hanging out for 500 years, mate. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> and that... It's probably an excellent note to leave on, because I think we're at time. And I, I want to say, if you can, please support these authors. Buy their books. They're in the book tent. They'll be around to sign them. You know, if you write for a living, this is our life, our heart, our living, and our art. Support them. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for being here and listening and participating. And can we get one big round of applause just to say thank you? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.